In the name of God, the life-giving, all-loving, and incarnate word, amen. Please be seated. What's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? What's the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to you? If I were to take the time to try to tabulate all of the occasions I've had to feel embarrassed, I think we'd be here in this sanctuary for a very long time. But I would like to tell you one story of particular humiliation, maybe two, that occurred early in my ministry as a way of getting into some crucial truth embedded in our scripture readings for today. Some of you may know this, but for anyone preparing for ordination, at some point during your seminary education, you have to undergo a particular trial called CPE, which stands for Clinical Pastoral Education. It usually happens between your first and second years of course study in seminary and essentially amounts to a three-month intensive internship or residency as a hospital chaplain. And it's kind of a baptism by fire for anyone who's trying to cultivate a pastoral heart for ministry. I did my CPE at the Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas's sprawling Texas medical complex and with a small cohort of other seminarians. And what happens is you're assigned a couple different units. For me, that was the emergency department and the surgical intensive care unit. And then you always have a long list of different people who have requested prayer and a visit from a chaplain. And y'all, it is an absolutely harrowing experience. I mean, trying to work up the nerve to knock on those hospital doors and be what my Mennonite German supervisor called a non-anxious presence is a very difficult thing for someone who's never stepped into that kind of a scenario before. And I can remember one particular experience from my first week as a CPE chaplain, maybe even from my first day. I'd done my rounds in the emergency department and on the SICU, and then I was given a call to come visit a young man who was, who was um, recovering from an operation. And I saw that he was a Vietnam vet, and I w I'm not sure if it was because I'd been watching too much Apocalypse Now, but I thought, here it is. Here's my chance to have a really meaningful encounter with this individual. Maybe we'll unpack a little trauma, get into some deep water, and have a, have a substantive, meaningful co uh, conversation. And I remember being in that room as what felt like the opposite of a non-anxious presence. I was trying to do anything possible to shape that conversation into something meaningful. And when I look back on it, probably something to prove something to this man or even gain a little approval. And all I remember were the awkward silences left between my attempts to spur a conversation amongst us. And finally, at one point, I can't remember what question I asked him, but I just remember him sort of incising me with his eyes. And finally, I just said, sir, I'm sorry. I'm doing my best here. And he looked at me and said, well, yes, you're a very awkward young man. I can see that. <laughs> Those experiences of early humiliation seemed only to persist into my first couple months of ordained ministry, particularly in the pulpit. I can remember my first dozen times preaching, being so nervous that I sweat through probably not just my clerical shirt, but also the vestments I was wearing. And I remember one particularly harrowing moment on my first Christmas Eve 
preaching as an ordained deacon. It was at the midnight mass, and I was trying to make some probably convoluted point about how the miraculous always manifests in the midst of the mundane. And it was my first time going off script, and I remember trying to draw a comparison between our sort of technology-saturated 21st century existence and first century Palestine, going a little off script and saying something to the effect of, well, we may not have straw and, and cattle and, uh, and mangers any longer, but we have screens. And that exclamation screens just kind of hovered in the air as I stood there like a deer in the headlight and ultimately exited the church feeling some sort of species of shame. Humiliation. The word humiliation and humility share the same etymological root, but they're about as different from one another in terms of psycho-emotional experience as we can have as humans. Some of you have heard me mention the fact that Brene Brown, the social science researcher, says that the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is I did something wrong, shame is I am something wrong. And I know that in those moments when I was trying so hard to prove myself and probably seek some approval from others, to have some meaningful impact on others in ministry, I often ended in that state of humiliation, walking away in a bit of shame. But humility is something far different, far more important to us in our lives of faith. I can remember when I was in seminary, um, I met with a spiritual director, a monk every couple weeks, an Episcopal monk. And for those of you that don't know, spiritual direction is kind of like a cross between life coaching and therapy, except the trained person sitting across from you is trying to help you discern the movements of the Holy Spirit in your midst. And I remember one day rehearsing this whole litany of humiliations, things that I'd done and left undone, and finally exhausting my little list and sitting in quiet with this very wise, grounded person named Brother Scott. And I remember him looking to me and saying, you know, Travis, what I'm trying to figure out is when you decided it was okay to talk to yourself this way. Because if I heard you talking this way about someone else, I'd say that it was borderline abusive. True humility, Brother Scott taught me that day, has to do not with self-abasement, with self-judgment and self-punishment, but rather has to do with groundedness. The word humility comes from the word humus, hummus. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Humus as in the soil. Rich soil in which some sort of crop can grow. And true humility, Brother Scott taught me, is not about having this low opinion of oneself, a worm that I am and no man, but rather consists of having neither a higher or lower view of yourself than God does. And in fact, it ultimately means viewing yourself and all other people in this grounded way as beloved children of God. And in some ways, theologically speaking, from a Judeo-Christian perspective, it's really a question, this difference between humiliation and humility, of where you start the story. Do you start it in Genesis 2 with the eating of the apple and the whole mess of blame and shame that transpires thereafter? Or do you start in Genesis 1 when God speaks all creation into being and then creates humankind, me and you, in God's image and says that we are very good, that we're beloved children of God? Being grounded in that truth 
of our being made in God's image and then living so that we reflect that fact to others is what the true heart of the Christian life is about. And it's the core message in our passage today from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Some of you may know this, especially if you're sort of church nerds like all of us up here wearing the fancy vestments. But the texts that were given on, on any given Sunday are assigned from something called the lectionary. The lectionary is a compilation of texts from the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, and they cycle through every three years. So if you stick in this game long enough, you end up preaching on some of the same passages. And as a preacher, sometimes I'll open up that lectionary when I'm preparing to preach in an upcoming Sunday, and I'm filled with a little bit of ambivalence or apathy. Just nothing really grabs me from those texts, and I need to work a little bit harder to find some good news embedded within them. And then sometimes you're served up a text that feels like an absolute gift. That's the way I felt this morning in opening my lectionary and seeing that we were assigned this second chapter from Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's one of my favorite texts in the entire New Testament. Paul's writing to a community in Philippi that he founded. Philippi was a small town, a Roman colony in Macedonia, which is part of northern Greece. And Paul founded a church there on his second missionary journey in about the year 50 CE. And he loves this community. He loves them deeply. There's this amazing line in the first chapter of Philippians where Paul says, I thank God every time I remember you and think of you in my prayers. He has such deep love for this community who are converts from pagan religion, who are Gentile converts rather than Jewish ones to the faith. And after founding this community, Paul does what he does. He goes around the world preaching good news to those in need of consolation. He works to heal people. He comforts the distressed. And ultimately, his ministry is so um, subversive, is so uh, tumultuous that he gets thrown into prison a couple times. And we know that he, got, he wrote, writes this letter to the Philippians from prison. It's maybe prison in Ephesus or maybe in Rome where he's ultimately executed. But what we know is that this community, this church community, finds out that their beloved teacher and founding member is in prison. So they send someone, one of their own community members named um, Epaphroditus, to Paul to take care of his needs, to give him food and clothing and make sure that all of his material needs are met. And what happens then is so astonishing. He writes a letter back to this community in Philippi, and the entire thing is one gigantic ode to joy, a hymn to resilience, and ultimately to humility. In four short chapters, Paul uses some version of the Greek word for joy 16 times. They send Epaphroditus to comfort him, but Paul, in the midst of his of his suffering, in the midst of this bondage, this experience of imprisonment, he actually offers consolation to them. And the way that he finds a sense of deep joy, even in the midst of such suffering and hardship, is, I think, crystallized in this second chapter of Philippians that we're given to read today. And actually, it's not so much Paul's words that offer us this, this encouragement, but it's a text that he quotes that the early church used to use in its worship practices. And it's called by scholars the canonic hymn. The canonic hymn. 
It was written in about the year 30, and we have evidence that it was used in all sorts of early church services. And actually, in a lot of Bible translations, it's set out like a hymn or like a, poem, a text of poetry. And it's that part that begins, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was one with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped at, but emptied himself, taking on this form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's called the canonic hymn because it's a, it's a, a meditation on this sort of um, sophisticated Greek term, and this is going to be your only million-dollar word of the day, but this term is kenosis, and it doesn't really have an English equivalent. It means something like self-emptying or self-pouring out, and the theological idea is that God, the source of all that is, the source of every creeping, crawling, flying thing on this earth, of every human being, the source of the the creator of the Grand Tetons and the Mariana Trench and our solar system and the galaxy in which we find ourselves and all the galaxies with which ours constellates. The creator of all of that, the divine, empties God's self of all the qualities of transcendence, like omniscience and omnipresence in order to become a vulnerable human being to embody for us a vision of what love looks like. And what Paul is inviting these Philippians into is a different sort of practice or posture of the heart, a different sort of practice of living in which we empty ourselves of the presumption that we sort of know how the whole thing is knit together. We empty ourselves of this egoic notion that, that, that somehow our sense of purpose is connected to what we achieve, how we navigate this world of competition and... Um, Competition and the need to tether our sense of self-worth to productivity and production. And for Paul, that's true humility. That's true self-emptying. Not trying to prove ourselves or gain the approval of others, but finding a way to open ourselves and our hearts to the possibility that the Holy Spirit might be doing something in our midst and knitting this whole story together in a way that's more beautiful than we could hope to comprehend. And I was as I was trying to wrap my mind around this concept of kenosis today and find a sort of um, maybe contemporary equivalent or analog, I kept thinking of this beautiful speech that was given by an author named David Foster Wallace to the Kenyon College graduating class in 2005. David Foster Wallace was a postmodern novelist who in a lot of ways lived a very tortured life. But this graduation speech is one of the most brilliant texts of wisdom that I've come across in the last 30 years or so. And it's gotten published under the title, This is Water. Because what David Foster Wallace is essentially telling these graduating students from this privileged liberal arts college is that you're about to enter a whole sea that you know nothing about. And this is what the water's like. He says you're gonna enter this entire culture where competition and achievement are the currency of the day in this sort of capitalistic context, and you're going to find yourself leaving your job one day, maybe a lucrative job, maybe also a very frustrating job, feeling frustrated, feeling exhausted and uncomfortable. And you're gonna, all you're going to want to do is to get home, have a good meal, and relax, but then you're going to remember that you forgot something at the grocery store. 
So you're going to drive across town, and in the meantime, you're going to get cut off by someone who's got a truck that's way too big to drive in a city of your size. And you're going to get to this grocery store, and you're going to get that one shopping cart that has the broken wheel, so it pulls maddeningly to the left. And you're going to get in the checkout line, and there's going to be a snotty-nosed kid complaining and begging for something they think they want or need in front of you. And you're going to notice a little bit of the, the spittle on the cashier's cheek that's sort of glistening under the fluorescent um, garishness of that sort of uh, supermarket-lit purgatory. And then you're going to be given a choice. Do you sort of succumb to this low-grade despair that so easily creeps in when we allow ourselves to get hijacked by purely thoughts of self-interest, I, me, mine, or do you open up? Do you consider other possibilities? Perhaps that person who cut you off in traffic is rushing to get to a loved one at the hospital who's had an accident. Perhaps this parent wrangling their kid has another sick kid at home, and they're just trying to get home with a little medicine and relief. Perhaps that cashier has a sick parent that they're taking care of and they're working these long hours just to afford a little bit of health care. He says, perhaps these are possible. They're not likely scenarios, but they're possible ones. And for David Foster Wallace, this is what a life of meaning ultimately involves. He's got some beautiful phrases where he says that we need to relinquish the tyranny of the ego. This sort of presumption that we know how this whole thing works and that we just have to navigate it through ourselves through it as expertly as possible. He talks about relinqu relinquishing what he calls the claim to our little skull-sized kingdoms in order to open ourselves up to more possibility. And I think that Paul is getting at something similar. I think that kenosis that true humility, that groundedness in the soil is about this sort of openness of spirit and heart. It's living into the possibility that this whole thing may be constructed in a much more intricate and subtle and ultimately beautiful way that's undergird by love that any of us can wrap our heads or hearts around. And to close today, I want to tell you one more story from that early experience in CPE that I think might illustrate a little bit of movement in one person's life from that experience of humiliation that's more grounded in a, in a, in a, in a grasping of the ego toward true humility, grounded in this deeper sense of the self. I mentioned that um, as part of CPE, you usually do an overnight stint every two weeks. You're on call. And there's a little chaplain's sort of suite with a cot in it, but you don't really get to spend much time in that little room resting because there's always some sort of code or emergent experience that you're supposed to rush off to so you can be that non-anxious presence to different patients and their families. And then there's that long list of different people to visit. At the Methodist Hospital, there's something like 907 rooms. So someone's always in need of a little prayer, a little support and conversation. And I can remember early one morning during one of my first on-calls making those rounds, working through that list, visiting as many sick patients as I could. And I remember being approached by a nurse on one of these floors leaving her station and asking me, sir, are you the chaplain? Yes, I am. Well, I think there's a young man in this room who could maybe use a little bit of prayer. He's preparing for an operation. And I walk in and see a man who's about my age standing with what looked like his parents. 
I introduce myself, ask them if they'd like to say a prayer. They say yes. And we hold hands. And I remember doing my best to pray from the heart, to be a sort of vessel for the Holy Spirit to speak through. But what I remember most was sort of the, the awkwardness and uncomfortableness of that moment. As someone who really prizes and values eloquence, I just remember feeling kind of woefully inarticulate, but also knowing that I'd done my best. And there was sort of a palpable sense of nerves in the room. He's preparing for this big procedure in just a couple minutes. So I bid them adieu, walk out, and honestly, I didn't think about that young man much thereafter. I probably turned my attention more to the breakfast taco and cold brew that was awaiting me once my shift ended and just went on with my morning. Didn't even remember that young man's name or the encounter itself until that Monday morning. That Monday morning, I was doing my rounds and came into the surgical ICU into one of these big recovery bay rooms with about six or seven hospital beds at different stations, parishioned by some curtains, and then I saw him immediately as I walked into the room. That young man, flanked by what looks like 14 of his loved ones, his family members and friends, and his dad stands up immediately when he sees me and says, there's that chaplain, <laughs> runs to me across the room and grasps me in what felt like the most desperate but loving hug I've ever experienced and began weeping into my shoulder. After a minute or so, we sort of started to separate, and then he comes back in, grabs me again, and shakes his head and says, no, no, I can't let go yet. I can't let go yet. His son had just completed his second liver transplant. And he was filled with this sense of hope, of joy. And somehow, despite my awkwardness and insecurity, I'd been involved with them being infused with just a little bit more hope, a little more peace, a little bit more love, a little bit more joy. And y'all, this whole thing, it's just knit together in a more mysterious, in a more mystical, in a more beautiful way than we can ever comprehend. And the more that we can empty ourselves of those insecurities and those ego fears of needing to prove something, needing to achieve something, tethering our self-worth to our productivity, the more we can ground ourselves in this deep truth that we are loved, that we're made in the image of God who is love, the more that these currents of grace and truth and beauty can flow through us so that we might help with God co-create some story that's more beautiful than ever, anything we could ever hope to imagine. Amen.
please stand and join me in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, 